0: And we will begin verse 13, our passage says from verse 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord Jesus, to acknowledge your sovereign presence here at Grace and Truth, where two or three are gathered, here you are in the midst we are your people, the sheep of your pasture, and we are not worthy to be in your presence, but you have made us worthy, O oh Lord, by bearing our sins on the cross and saving us and forgiving us. This passage before us will elucidate this very gospel reality to us. I pray that our hearts would be open and humble to hear from you, Father God. Please clear out all the, all the carnality and the fleshliness of our minds and hearts that would interfere with receiving your word, O oh Lord. Father God, we pray that Your Spirit would overshadow us today, quicken our hearts, that and our minds, that we may receive from You, Father God. And I pray for my own heart and mind to be quickened by Your Spirit. That Lord, that You would equip me, enable me to speak forth Thy Word with truth, and that I would be used, O Lord, as an instrument for Your glory today. Almighty God, we pray that You would indeed be glorified in today's message. That You would speak to us. And that our hearts would be moved and motivated by the very words we hear in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, so we are in the Christmas Advent season. One week to go. It goes by very quickly every year. This comes and goes, and one of the one of the hallmarks of the Advent season, at least from the worldly and cultural perspective, is Christmas shopping. I went yesterday to the local mall near me, the Jefferson Valley Mall, and which usually is a dead mall. It, it It's almost a cemetery, and you couldn't get a parking spot in there. Uh, people are shopping, and they're spending loads of money. Um, I was blessed personally in my, my trip there because there was a gospel choir from a church I couldn't quite make out. I couldn't hear what church they were from. But they sang uh, just tremendously. Um, There was one woman who just had a voice. I I tell you, it it, it was like hearing Whitney Houston sing. It was just beautiful. Um, Great gospel choir, gospel music in the middle of Jefferson Valley Mall. I said, who could ask for more? So me and Rachel hung out and listened to some songs. But walking around, you just see people spending money. And I was reading a piece recently that was saying that that this Christmas season, although inflation is high and everything costs more money, believe it or not, consumer spending is at an all-time high. So how is that? With all this inflation, with all the the, the, the cost of living and the cost of, of consumer goods so high, where are people finding the money to buy all this stuff? And the answer is simply this, they borrow it. In fact, um, most Americans... And most people in our country today are loaded down with debt. Our country itself is $31 trillion in debt. Just let that sink in for a minute, $31 trillion in debt. The average American has a tremendous amount of debt, whether you carry a mortgage or you have a car that you have a a note on or whether you have consumer debt. And many Americans, a great number of Americans, have Ah, uh, student debt. You went to college, and college tuition is very expensive, and you, and you incur tremendous debt. In fact, I was reading about this. Uh, the average t- school tuition—this is average, not the high, not the low, but the average uh, school tuition for college, four-year for school in America is approximately twenty thousand dollars a year. Now, that's not including, you know, room or board or school books or anything else. And that could add up. And considering that most young adults leave college and start entry-level jobs that they could barely afford to pay rent, one wonders, how is that debt repaid? And uh, seminary students have it even worse. <laughs> uh, so when people ask me about seminary, I say, you, you will incur a big debt, and you will probably get a job with very little pay. Um, but one of the big things, one of the topics that we've been hearing a lot in the news and in politics is this idea of canceling student debt, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of... A lot of young adults are upset that they have to pay back their student debt, and so they have uh, lobbied, uh, at least the Democratic Party, to pass legislation to cancel all student debt. And uh, that may get traction right now. There's not enough votes to do that. Uh, there's approximately 1.75 trillion dollars in student debt in America. So the question is: Is that canceled? Who, where does it go? Does it just does the debt just disappear? And that's one of the things we're we'll going to be looking at. When debt is canceled, it doesn't just disappear. Somebody has to pay the price. Somebody pays for it. Someone absorbs the cost. And that brings us to our text today, because when we're talking about debt, we come back to the Bible, and the Bible talks about man's greatest debt. And that is the debt we owe to God. And the scripture tells us that Jesus paid it all. And it tells us that that our debt was canceled, it was wiped away, it was erased. Imagine that. Imagine having the most astronomical debt in the world, and someone just says, you don't have to pay it no more. Now, I want you to think about this, because as it comes into our message day, it follows on two themes. Number one, it's following on the theme of baptism from last week, where Paul is writing to the Colossian church, warning them not to get taken captive by the false teachers and the philosophies of the world. He's reminding them of their baptism, what their baptism symbolizes, And their baptism symbolizes their union with Christ, that they're in Christ, they're one with him. But now it it gets down to the fundamentals of how this union is even possible. How is it possible that we could be one with Christ? How could we sinners who have been an offense to God, who have tramped on God, who have insulted God with us, and how could we be one with him? And so we look at our text today, in three different elements of the benefits we enjoy in this new life in Christ. And it's possible in these three ways. Number one, that we have a resurrected life. We have a new life in Christ. And number two is that that debt was canceled. And number three is that through Christ we have triumph over the spiritual enemies that we have that empower the philosophies of this world, the world we live in. Number one, Let's talk about the new life in Christ, verse 13. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And so, and so we are one time, Paul says, dead in our trespasses. What Paul is reminding the Colossian churches, what we have to hear here today, is a reminder of what our spiritual condition was before we became Christians. What is the spiritual condition of the people in your life who are not Christians? What is the spiritual condition of the world without Christ? And that answer is they are dead. They are dead in transgressions. Now, I want you to think about this because what it's talking about is not physical death, but it's talking about spiritual death. Now, in a parallel passage, Paul gives a further explanation as to what this spiritual death looks like. In Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, he says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in in, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So there's a few important things to see here. Number one is that is that in, in being dead in your trespasses and sins, it means at one time we were part of this world. We were part of the course of this world, and and the ways of this world, and the philosophies of this world. And the one who is the, the god of this world is the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. And it's the spirit now at work or energizing in the sons of disobedience. It's interesting the parallel Paul makes there because while we who are in Christ have the spirit of God operating in us, energizing us so that we may obey God and live in obedience, it's amazing that the spirit of Satan is actually empowering and energizing those who are spiritually dead to disobey God. It's a spiritual conflict. That's why when when there's conflict between uh, uh, us and the world and those who are spiritually dead. It's a spiritual battle. You're opposing the spirit of Satan. And you have the spirit of God. There's going to be a natural conflict that arises. And ultimately it tells us that in that spiritual death is, is annotated and it's characterized by living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind. That's what being spiritually dead is. Being spiritually dead is means you are a slave to your flesh. It means that whatever your flesh, whatever your sinful nature wants, you're going to pursue and you're going to do because there's no restraint. You are governed by your carnal appetite. You are governed by your sinful pleasures. You are dictated by the impulses of the sinful nature. And that is what life is like when you are spiritually dead in your transgressions. You're not free. You're actually a slave. You're you're enslaved into your passions. And it's a horrible place to be. So what do we do? We justify our sinful impulses by creating morally acceptable terms to justify and excuse our behavior. But at the end of the day, it is still sin. The thing that we have to realize about our moral condition prior to coming to Christ is that we were not merely spiritually sick, we were dead, right? So the idea that someone can come to Christ in there, you know, often this imagery is given of a man on, on, in a hospital, he's, he's, he's on death's doorstep, he's about to die, but he's very sick, and the doctor comes and says, just take this medicine, if you receive it, you'll get better. That's usually an analogy that an Arminian gospel preacher will give when presenting the gospel as if if we're just really spiritually handicapped and sick people. But we're not. We're actually dead. We flatlined. We need to be resuscitated. We need to be revived. We need to be resurrected. We need to be brought back from the dead. What causes such death? Sin. Sin kills. Sin kills. It kills us in two ways. First, it's the inherent sin that we have, original sin from Adam that's been passed down to us. In Adam, all die. Romans 5.18 tells we're all spiritually dead in Adam. But it's our actual sin that continues the death process. You see, when we come into this world, we're not innocent, but we have sort of like a blank slate. And, the, and, 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 and as as children grow and become adults, The heart gets harder and harder and harder to sin unless there's a spiritual intervention. The spiritual death just compounds. Spiritual death is actually a process. You come in this world dead in your sins and trespasses, and the hope is that parents can push their children towards God and that they believe and they come to faith through the grace of God. But if not, the hardness of sin will just take that person further and further away from God. That's what spiritual death is. It's separation from God. It's alienation from God. Now, I want you to think about this. When we talk about physical death, what are we talking about? We're talking about separation of the soul from the body. Right? When you die, what happens? Your soul leaves your body. Your body's lifeless. Without the soul, there's no life. And it's the same thing. When we talk about spiritual death, we're talking about people that are separated from God. God is not in their lives, and they're not in God, they're in sin. Remember what Jesus says that, that when in John chapter eight he says, I'm gonna die and you can't follow me because I tell you, truly, truly I tell you, you will die in your sins. All who do not believe in Jesus Christ die in their sins, they die in a state of alienation and separation from God. When you die in your sins, you die what they call the second death, and that's eternal death. When you're separated from God forever, in eternal punishment. Again, sin is the cause here. The disease is sin. It's what separates us from God. Isaiah 59.2, the wages of sin is death and the fault lies completely on us. And so we must understand that apart from God, we cannot come to him on our own. We are corrupt. We are, the sinful nature has wreaked havoc on us. We must be born again. We must be raised from the spiritual dead. And how does this happen? Well, two clues here. One, it says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now that has a double meaning there. Now Paul's writing to a primarily Gentile church. The Gentiles were by nature uncircumcised. He refers to the uncircumcision. But if we remember last week's sermon, there's another aspect to it, and that is that We talked about baptism, and we talked about it symbolizing the circumcision of Christ. That is the removal of flesh, or the removal of the sinful nature. The circumcision here is talking about when we're born again. In that, the sinful man is stripped off. The sinful nature is stripped off. And in our natural state, we are uncircumcised. Circumcision symbolizes being set apart for God. When you're uncircumcised, you are alienated from God. You're separate from God. You're outside the covenant of God. And just as being raised from death to life is something only God can do, a spiritual circumcision is only something God can do. This is new life. And so this is the basis on which we have union with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 10 through 11 says this, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That's what it means to be born again. Are you alive today? Are you alive? Hello? are you spiritually alive do you have the spirit of God the presence of God in you do you feel the power of God in your life are you alive to the word of God does the, does the scripture bring life and vibrance to you do the words of God inspire you and encourage you and give you hope and encouragement are you alive to the people of God do you have a sense of magnetism and attraction and affection towards other Christians? Do you enjoy being around other Christians? Do you feel repelled by those who are not in Christ? Do you enjoy doing that which is pleasing to God and hate that which is offensive to Him? Do you grieve and mourn when you sin? Are you alive? Are you alive? God makes us alive. That's what it says in verse 13. And that brings us to the second point. How does he do this? Through or having forgiving us all of our trespasses. What we have to understand is that there will be no possibility of this apart from God dealing with our sins. If sin is the cause which separates us from God, then sin needs to be dealt with. Now, I have to say, as Americans say, we are very fixated on on health, right? We are very fixated on health. I'm starting to become more health conscious, my food choices and exercising. I think I allowed myself to get too out of shape, and uh, I'm not proud to not admit that. It's true, but I'm on the course. I believe I'm on a course correction. Hopefully it stays that way. Um, but Americans are, some Americans are very health conscious, take a lot of supplements. They really are radical about their eating and their working out. But I'm going to tell you this interesting thing, that if you don't deal with sin, it doesn't matter how healthy you are, sin is the greatest disease because it rots to the soul. Your outward man may look good, but inwardly you could be Perishing. Scripture, biblically, it may say, although the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed for those who are spiritually born again. You see, if sin is what separates us from God, then our greatest need is not to be healthy. Our greatest need is to be forgiven. Our greatest need is to be right with God. You see, I don't think we have a right understanding of what sin is. We don't take sin serious enough. I think we take sin very lightly. Pastor Paul often uses that Billy Sunday example about treating sin like a powder puff. For me, my influence on understanding of sin was R. C. Sprawl. In his book, The Holiness of God, he talks about the concept of cosmic treason. He describes all sin against God as cosmic treason. You know what treason is? It's a high crime. It's a it's a it's a it's a It's a capital crime in America. Treason is when you betray your country. The Rosenbergs were convicted of... of, uh, Was it the Rosenbergs who sold out our secrets to the Soviets? They were convicted of treason, selling our nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union. They were executed. They 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 were killed. It's a high crime. It's betraying your country to the enemy. R.C. Sproul describes sin as cosmic treason against God. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. He says we really rarely take the time to think through the ramifications of our sins. We fail to realize that even the slightest sin we commit, such as little white lies and other peccadilloes, we are violating the law of the Creator of the universe. In the smallest sin, we defy God's right to rule and reign over his creation. Instead, we seek to usurp for ourselves the authority and the power that belong properly to God. Even the slightest sin does violence to his holiness, to his glory, and to his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant is truly an act of treason against the cosmic king. Every Often you'll hear Paul or I when we pray a prayer of confession that God would forgive us not only of our sinful deeds, but our sinful thoughts and our sinful words. For the slightest sin is an offense against the holy God. Sin has far-reaching consequences. I've, I've seen... In my life, and I've seen in the lives of others, how sins committed many years ago where you think you got away with it has a way of spreading its tentacles like cancer and causing heartache from years to come. Sin has an eternal weight to it, which is why we're punished eternally for sin, because you sin against an eternal God and the ramifications of sin go on forever. They affect people for generations. It's a cancer. There are many different analogies the Bible uses to describe sin. Cosmic treason or crime is one of them, or transgression or trespassing the idea of falling short or crossing a line. But in our text, sin is described as a debt. In fact, the word forgiveness comes from a Financial background, and it literally means to cancel a debt. Debt forgiveness. It's the language that Jesus used himself when he taught us the Lord's Prayer Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What is this debt that we owe God? Medieval theologian Anselm of Canterbury answers it and describes sin as, and I quote, failing to render to God his due, namely entire submission of our wills to his. To sin, therefore, is to take away from God what is his own, to steal from him and to dishonor him, end quote. What do we owe God? We owe God absolute obedience. We owe God our worship. We owe God our time. We owe God our money. We owe God our fidelity. We owe God our loyalty. We owe Him our commitment. We owe Him everything. There's nothing that God does not deserve. Sin is a failure to render to God what we owe him. Remember Jesus said when they asked him, who should we pay taxes to Caesar? They were so caught up in the politics of the Roman Empire. Jesus says, render to Caesar what Caesar's. Render to God what's God's. The greatest failure we have is not paying taxes or who we pay taxes to. Our greatest failure is that we owe God and have failed to pay him what we owe The problem is our debt is astronomical and we cannot pay it. The only way we could pay that debt is in eternity in hell. No, not no not, not purgatory. No, hell. Because sin is eternal because it's against an eternal God and therefore the punishment for sin is eternal. We basically have a huge IOU to God. And that's what the text here says to, uh, to us. If you look, go back to chapter four, tw- 2, verse 14, it says, by canceling, this is how he's forgiven us, by canceling the record of debt or the certificate of debt. It's basically an IOU, a promissory note. But it's of a debt of a nature that we cannot pay. It's impossible to pay. And so therefore, the text tells us that this record of debt stood against us with its legal demands. The word stood against literally means to oppose, to go against. In other words, uh, going back to the text... The legal demands, or the legal decrees, which is the actual word in the Greek, tells us that there are consequences towards this debt. There's a ramification to it. It says, I know the ESV says legal demands. The actual word in Greek is decrees. It's the same word used there in Luke 2.14 when it says that Caesar issued a decree of a census. Remember when... When Mary and Joseph had to go back to Nazareth, I mean to uh, Bethlehem from Nazareth, it was because a decree was issued. The same word here is decree. The question is, what kind of decree stands against us for this debt? A decree is that which is an edict issued by a sovereign ruler. But look what it says in Romans chapter one, verse twenty-nine through thirty-two. Again, Romans one twenty-nine through thirty-two. It says, they were filled, speaking of the ungodly that God had given up, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers and haters of God and insolent and haughty and boastful and inventors of evil and disobedient to parents and foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now notice what verse 32 says, though... They know God's what? Righteous decree. That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God's righteous decree, the decree that stands against us with our record of debt, is what? That those who practice such things deserve to die. When you go back to the Old Testament, You know how many sins were deserving of capital punishment? There was a long list of sins that deserved capital punishment. If a child spoke back to their parents or insulted their parents, they were to be stoned to death. There wouldn't be too many kids alive in our day and age. Why was capital punishment used so much? Was God that harsh? He was trying to send a message that the wages of sin is death. Sin against God is deserving of death. And that death can only be satisfied by the death of Jesus. That's why it says here in the end of verse 14, he set this aside. What did he set aside? The decrees, the record of debt by nailing it to the cross. You see, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he took that debt, he took all that debt, all that sin, all that that cosmic treason, from the slightest sin to the greatest of sins, and he bore them as our sin bearer. And when he died, he didn't just die a physical death, but he died the most tormented Death, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? He suffered what we would suffer. Eternal separation from God. All in a moment, in a three-hour time period. It's hard to fathom and understand. Spiritual death, eternal death, all deal with the consequences of sin. And Christ is the one who took care of it all. Notice what it says here in verse 14. The first part, it says he canceled the record of debt. He canceled the record of debt. The word here in Greek is exalefo, exalefo. It literally means to blot out, to erase, or to wipe away. It's the same word used in Revelation when it tells us when we get to heaven that God will wipe away every tear. He will blot it out. He will erase it. That record of debt, that, that huge uh, um, ledger with red ink on it, the Lord Jesus wipes the slate clean. It's all gone. Remember in the beginning of my sermon, I said when debt is canceled, it doesn't just disappear. It has to be paid for. Someone's paying for it. Jesus paid it. All. he paid the debt that you and I could never pay. He paid it with his life, in his active obedience to God, and he paid it in his death with his passive obedience to God. He fully and totally forgave us. Interesting choice of word here for forgiveness as well. There are a few different words, but in this passage, Paul uses the word charizomai. We get the word char from the root charis, or, 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 or what we talk, or, or charismatic. And it's the idea of a gift. It's the idea of giving. It speaks of the generosity of God. For God so loved the world, he gave us his only son. If God did not spare his only son, Will he not in Christ give you all things? Who's the great giver this Christmas? God has freely given to us everything in Christ because Jesus dealt with the biggest issue in our life, the biggest biggest issue to our health, to our spiritual health, to our physical health, to our minds, to our hearts. Everything is sin and he dealt with it. So then the question comes this. If this is all true, why do we keep sinning? This ought not to be. Let me put it this way. Sin is expensive. When you go out today and you go to a store or you go out this week and shopping, like, I can't believe how expensive that is when you look at the the grocery store products or you go to buy an outfit and you're like, I can't believe how much prices went up. And you walk away because you say that's too expensive. Just remember, every time you are about to sin, just remind yourself how expensive that sin is. Remember that, that it cost God his son. Think about Jesus dying on the cross. Think of his marred image. Think of his suffering. Think of his torment. Think of the pain and agony he bore in our place every time you are free and footloose to sin. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Christ's death on the cross does not abrogate us from our continual obligation to pay what we owe to God. It enables us to pay what we owe our indebtedness is not in the sense that we'll be held liable to the judge or rather it's an indebtedness of love knowing that Christ has set us free finally through the cross god also conquered the demonic realm and whatever power they had over us remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the powers behind the worldly philosophies that seek to take people captive. Go back to our passage in verse 15. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Going back to verse 8, it says, the, the uh, worldly philosophies by an empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. It's speaking of the demonic entities that are at work energizing the hearts of unbelievers, the sons of disobedience. But we are told here that the death and resurrection of Christ disarmed them. 1 John 3 8 tells us that Jesus came into this world to destroy the works of the devil. How does the work of Christ disarm the demonic realm? Well, if we understand who Satan is, the Bible tells us many things about Satan. He's our adversary. He is the father of all lies. He is a murderer from the beginning. But he is also the accuser of the brethren. Tells us that in Revelation 12. He is the accuser of God's people. You see, Satan is the one who looks at our sin who looks at our guilt and stands there with the finger pointed as accusing us how dare you you filthy slime you don't deserve god's grace you deserve hell that's right you deserve hell you you horrible disgusting human being you see the strength of satan is our sin In causing the fall, Satan always reminds us of our sin and guilt and how we've incurred this debt, and he hammers us with it. And he uses his demonic forces to bring accusations with us, against us. He'll even use unbelievers to accuse us. Right? If you mess up in the world, who's the first person that's going to hammer you hard? And you call yourself a Christian? How dare you, you hypocrite? Well, you shouldn't be surprised. That's Satan at work and them energizing them. They're speaking the very vocabulary of the devil. There's two takeaways from this. Number one. Number one is that Satan may be relentless in his accusations. He hates God and he hates God's people. But through the cross, Jesus has disarmed Satan. He has nothing against us. There's nothing he could pin against us. It's like, a, it's like a district attorney who's trying to convict a criminal but has nothing to pin on us. There's nothing he can do. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 says this, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, danger, or sword? Nothing. And so when Satan accuses us, we have to say, get thee behind me, Satan. We have to trust in the forgiveness of God because Jesus has disarmed them. It's a a phony threat. But there's a second aspect to this. We shouldn't give Satan a reason to accuse us. While God has dealt with all our past sins, who are we to think we have a right to sin without restraint, Someone said to me recently, oh, I'll go ahead and sin because God is merciful. He'll forgive me. And how dare you judge me? That's called high-handed rebellion. That's called, that's the kind of sin where you say, God, I'm going to take advantage and abuse your grace. I'm going to go full forward in sin and I'm going to offend you and I'm going to sin against you. What are you going to do about it is what you're doing. You're daring God you're tempting the Lord. You do two things. Yes, Satan will accuse you, and you, you certainly cannot claim the grace of God when you are in high-handed rebellion. And two, you will get the accusations of people around you. You will get the accusations of the unbeliever, and you will get the judgments even of your own peers in the church. And you should. If someone in the church loves you, they will tell you you're wrong. In the end of the day, though, as children of God, we realize that no one can shake us from that reality. And if we sin so far that we keep sinning and sinning and sinning after supposedly coming to a knowledge of the gospel, what does that say? It tells you you're not a Christian to begin with. Look at at Hebrews chapter 6 for a minute. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, it says, For it is impossible... In the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Everybody talked about the the price and the cost of sin. When you continue carelessly to sin against God, it's like crucifying him over and over and over and over, indulging in the crucifixion of Christ. How can God be honored? Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 says this. And these are the warning passages. They're a very severe warning passage. Verse 26, 1026 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. My brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus has conquered Satan. He's conquered sin In fact, the the language there talks about a Roman triumph victory parade. King Jesus is walking in triumph and procession with with the devil chained behind him as a defeated foe. The only thing that could empower Satan is when we mock Jesus and raise our fist against him and continue hell-bent on our sin and have no regard for the cost of the Great debt that he paid. Let me conclude with this. There's nothing better in life than to be debt-free. There's nothing better in life not to owe any man anything. It says in the Bible, right? <laughs> owe no one anything but the debt of love. Unfortunately, we live in a world where we have mortgages, we have car notes, we have, we have to borrow money from time to time to, to get ahead in life. But there's one debt that Christ satisfied completely and that's the greatest debt we ever had. Man's greatest debt and that is the debt to God that we could never pay. Jesus paid it all, every single penny. And if there's nothing to bring joy to your hearts this Christmas season, if you're going through a period of maybe you're down or depressed or struggling, you're having issues in your life, ponder on this. Christ has forgiven you all of your sins. You've been set free. Rejoice in that.